From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Uh, But we're going to try and wade through here and get to what's next, as opposed to reflecting back as much as we look forward, as today is a very big day this September 11th. As that is the day, this is the day that Surrey Council will reconvene with a lot on the agenda and certainly uh, policing budgets are the centerpiece of that. Many things to be on the table, but policing budgets have been top of mind for, well, years. We're very pleased to welcome Surrey City Councillor and Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers, for that matter, Linda Ennis. Ennis is with us. Uh, Linda, thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. So... Let's begin with how big today's uh, reconvening of council is. What do you expect to take place today? Well, we've had a recess now for about six weeks, and you know we've been pretty silent about what the transition is going to do in terms of the police transition, that is. And you know tonight we are getting a report that's coming forward to council. I'm quite disappointed, though, um, in the sense of urgency. It's been you know now six weeks since... Uh, uh, Minister Farnworth has made the decision that Surrey must stay with uh, the transition process and continue on and have the Surrey Police Service as the police of jurisdiction. And while this time is dwindling by, it's costing the taxpayers of Surrey $266,000 each and every day. We need to get on with it. And I am hoping that uh, after tonight, but not optimistic, that uh, this will move a lot quicker. You know, that is a big question because you do the math there, $266,000 a day, $8 million a month to have two uh, police forces at play. And and Mayor Brenda Locke has always maintained that the taxpayers' burden is too heavy. And here we are, as you say, almost two months after the province's final decision. And the Surrey Police Service is still not allowed to hire, still not allowed to deploy. And why... Why is it that the RCMP are not demobilizing and transitioning? Well, it all comes from leadership, right? We need to, as city council, we need to be placing urgency on this and getting it done. I know Mayor Locke uh, ran on keeping the RCMP and it wasn't to be. So now it's time to move on and get the Surrey Police Service uh, up and running as quickly as possible so we're not wasting taxpayers' money. The longer this drags on, the more it's going to cost the taxpayers, and it just doesn't make sense. Uh, The faster that we can get it done with the best police force is the right thing to do for the residents of Surrey. So why do you think there is not that level of urgency that clearly you can hear it in your voice, Councillor Annis, you can hear it in your voice that you are saying, why are we not moving forward, given that this has been mandated by the province? Why wouldn't there be swift action taken by the mayor here when really there are no other avenues than to press forward in what the province has has mandated? Well, I think that's a very good question for the mayor. I do think, though, that she needs to put it her personal preferences this is what we're doing and we need to move forward and we need to move forward as a team uh, and we need to be working very closely uh, with the Surrey Police Board with the ministry uh, with the RCMP and she is um, chair of the police board needs to be stepping up and and providing that direction so that we can get the job done yeah, obviously money is a big motivator for for Surrey taxpayers certainly the cost again eight million dollars a month extra 
on top of what already is a very expensive process in setting up a, a new municipal police municipal police force that has been outlined for for years here. So. How concerned are you about the lack of the forward momentum, not just budget-wise, but also with the ability of Surrey Police Services to move forward with recruitment and retainment of officers? Um, it, it, this is this is highly concerning, and there is some discussion that the RCMP are really digging in their heels in terms of senior positions and and not and not really m- making it as turnkey as it might be if everybody was on the same page here and pulling together. Well, and we need to get on the same page, you know. Absolutely. This has just dragged on far, far too long. I've been in office along with all of my colleagues now um, for one year. Actually, I'm a second termer, but this this term. Uh, and if you were to do the math, that's 12 months uh, times $8 million. That's $96 million as we've been going back and forth. That's not good use of taxpayers' money. And now that the decision has been made, no matter which way you uh, would have preferred to see the decision going, we're all going, should be going in the same direction and supporting uh, the decision that we're going to have the Surrey Police Service and minimize the tax burden to the residents of Surrey. We're with Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. Uh, Linda Annis is also the Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. As you said, you are a second termer now. When you look at what is before you in Surrey, Canada's fastest growing city, obviously in dire need of public safety being a massive priority. Why would there be any limits under any any level of preference as to who or 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 how policing is managed from a political standpoint? How why would there be any limits as to deploying all law enforcement officers as soon as physically possible? It makes absolutely no reason. One of the things that I have been advocating to to speed up the process is let's build a center of excellence for police training here. We know that, um, you know, for new recruits, that there is minimal amount of spaces available at the JI, not just for Surrey Police Service, but for DPD and all the municipal police services. So let's take this as an opportunity to build a Center of Excellence on Police Training right here in Surrey, that would also help speed up the process um, because Mm -hmm. we can attract and train more recruits more quickly. But having said that, you know, we just need to get on with it and start, you know, planning out, you know, the final phases of our transition to the Surrey Police Service um, and not having the enthusiasm or the lack of desire isn't going to help. Uh, We need to get on with it and get on with it now. We're reading a little bit about this in in recent uh, publications about the RCMP's position on the hows and whys of the slowness of this transition, saying that the public might be confused to see SPS cruisers out on the streets of Surrey. They're literally collecting dust right now, even been bought, paid for uh, and 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 provided by the the Surrey taxpayer, but they're not being used right now. They're collecting dust in a warehouse. Uh, Why would that Uh, confusion um, be allowed to sort of be the narrative being pushed out there? Well, that's very confusing to me that someone would even suggest that. uh, As we know that the topic of police transition in Surrey has been going on for five years, and I don't think there's anyone in Surrey that isn't aware of this, or, you know, it's certainly... And I don't think in the end of the day, if you call 911 or use the non-emergency services, all you really want to know is that a police member will get to you in a really timely fashion and provide the 
public safety uh, concerns that you may have. Um, so I don't think there should be any sense of confusion about what vehicles showing up when and where. We know that we're in a transition. We've been talking about this for a long, long while, and we just need to get on with it. So what do you anticipate happening uh, when you do gather back at the council table? Have there been any preliminary discussions between yourself, the mayor, or you and your fellow councillors on what you might expect today? There has not been. This is our first day back. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we can get things moving along really quickly. We need to. Uh, we need to remember that the $266,000 that uh, is uh, getting burned away each day is not our money. It's the taxpayer's money. And we need to be respectful of that and get the job done as quickly as possible, no matter what your previous desire was, whether to have the Surrey Police Service or have the RCMP. That ship has sailed, and we need to just get on with it. Minister Farmworth has said that he is going to exercise his right, and with that, he's also given us $150 million to ease the tax burden as well. Well, we appreciate your time today. We look forward to hearing what happens uh, when you get into council chambers. And uh, I know that Mayor Brenda Locke will be joining Jazz Johal later on this afternoon. We'll be looking forward to what the mayor has to say as well. Councillor Linda Annis, thank you for your time. Thank you. Vance in for Jill Bennett and we are going back to that top story that Daria was just uh, telling you about if you are just tuning in there was a triple stabbing last night at a festival in Chinatown a festival called Light Up Chinatown it's an event that's meant to reinvigorate the community that has been through so very much in these last few years of COVID and and just feeling the stresses of some of the most difficult challenges that the city of Vancouver has right now. Uh, Certainly three innocent people uh, stabbed by a 64-year-old man who is in custody, allegedly stabbed by the 64-year-old man he is in custody, uh, known to police outside of Vancouver, not known to the VPD. Um, Here is uh, Chief Adam Palmer of the VPD explaining uh, the suspect. Have a listen. The suspect in these uh, attacks is a 64-year-old man. He's a non-Vancouver resident who was located within minutes of the crime in the downtown east side and taken to jail. He has had contact with police in the past, but not here in Vancouver. We have no VPD records of this person. He was on a day pass from a lower mainland forensic psychiatric center outside of Vancouver. Investigators from our Operations Division, Forensic Identification Unit, our Major Crime Section, and our Victim Services Unit have been working relentlessly on this case, gathering evidence, gathering forensics, dealing with the suspect, and we're also working with Crown Counsel to obtain charge approval, which we are hoping for in fairly short order. At that time, of course, this person's name will be released, and you will be able to uh, find out more information, but at this time, I'm not able to tell you this person's name, we uh, will keep you posted as soon as we hear more on what Crown Council does from here. Crown Council must uh, give charge approval. Here's Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim speaking about this terrible, terrible incident in Chinatown. So we were at the uh, Light Up Chinatown event uh, this weekend, and it was an incredible celebration. And there was, there was a lot of energy and excitement. Uh, the community had come together and rallied and it was just it was so great to see Um, 
you know, the, the, the community get together and the, the community has been just absolutely, you know, it's gone through a rough time over the last few years. Uh, you know, it's been going through a rough time for a while, but de definitely during COVID, it's been uh, a very challenging time. And the community has rallied and things were, you know, like, like Chief said, we're making a lot of progress. And then you have the incident uh, that happens at six o'clock last night where three innocent bystanders are assaulted, uh, violently assaulted. And it just, it, it's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, our hearts and our thoughts go out to the, you know, the individuals and their family and their friends. And as the chief mentioned, you know, uh, knock, knock on wood, you know, the physical wounds will heal and hopefully quickly, but uh, the trauma, um, I can only imagine how significant it will be for a long time and not just with them but their family and friends and uh, to the chief's point the community it you know it's a gut shot to the community as well. So Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim actually had a prepared statement and he said off the top of this press briefing earlier today I'm not going to use this prepared statement I'm going to speak from the heart. That was the mayor talking about the impacts on this community, on Chinatown. We want to talk further about that with Jordan Eng, the president of Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Association, who joins us on the line. Jordan, thanks for doing this. Uh, hi, hi, Jody. Thank you for having me on the on the on the show. A difficult, a difficult time indeed in Chinatown has been difficult, as the mayor mentioned for years here through COVID and even prior to, but especially difficult now in, in, in light of Light Up Chinatown, wanting to bring people there and together, and then this happens. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, uh, as the mayor said, and, and I think I speak for the community, is our thoughts are uh, with the victim and their family uh, with this senseless violence, uh, uh, violent act that occurred. And, uh, you know, it, it was unfortunate. Uh, Light Up Chinatown was a community event to bring the community together and, and to bring communities uh, within our, our own community together. So, uh, and to showcase what we've done in, in the past year with the, with the programs and, and the support from all three levels of government to, to, uh, to revitalize Chinatown. How can citizens help? I mean, you, you know, politically people are trying to help um, and do what they can to invigorate, but what, as, as the president of the Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Association, what would you have me do, us do? Well, I, you know, it's unfortunately, this incident, you know, has overshadowed, uh, you know, the good work. You know, you take uh, 10 steps forward and, and, and two steps back, but, uh, you know, we continue to work on programs with uh, the city, uh, the, the province, and the VPD, and, uh, you know, we, we want to have people come down and support the businesses in, in Chinatown. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, great businesses. We had collaborations uh, uh, with a number of the businesses, um, and they all participated in, in Light Up Chinatown to, to really welcome people that hadn't been to Chinatown for a long time to, to, uh, to encourage tourists to, to, to come. And uh, I think it was it's really important to, to support the local businesses in the neighborhood. Yeah, and not be put off or frightened by this random... Uh, attack this tragic event that took place when everybody was trying so so hard to 
get together and reinvigorate what has been uh, languishing somewhat and and sort of lost in the shuffle of our busyness. Uh, Jordan, uh, we're going to all put the call out for for people to come down and and throw our arms around Chinatown and the businesses that are that are trying to get back on their feet. Um, and and thank you for all your hard work in trying to improve that area. It is a, an absolute jewel and a gem for many of us born and raised Vancouverites who who feel as though uh, it, it needs reclaiming. We need to we need to get back in there and get back shopping there and get supporting the businesses in Chinatown. Absolutely, Jody. Absolutely. Thank you for your time today, sir. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. For the next few minutes, we're going to talk COVID-19. The numbers are spiking in BC, but is it the new variant that's been detected? Uh, let's go to somebody who knows these things. Uh, a good friend of the program and always great to have the opportunity to bend his ear. We welcome the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. Dr. Brian Conway is on the line. Thank you for doing this, doctor. Thanks for having me, Jody. I saw you on Global Morning News today, and I was interested in the clip that I heard when you were speaking about us getting our next vaccination, but that we weren't going to be getting a vaccine uh, that battles the new variant. Well, we'll be getting a vaccine that was designed against a close country cousin of this uh, new uh, new variant. It's an XBB vaccine. I think in the context of having had a bunch of shots having probably been infected, as is the case for most British Columbians, and that this vaccine providing protection against what we think is the new variant out there, that it will help in a very significant manner. It's important for people to go out and get the shot as soon as it's available. Okay, this is great. We got an, a question from a caller, believe it or not, in the commercial break. Tim French, our technical director, took the call and it, and the caller said, since we're no longer getting invitations to get COVID shots, how do we go about getting them? Well, I think it will be announced when it is available in Canada. It was just approved in the United States today, so hopefully uh, Canada will not be very far behind. And to my mind, it will be the same as the flu shot. Is You'll get the COVID shot, the flu shot, both at the same time, and announcements okay. will be made that they're widely available in pharmacies and clinics, and uh, you, uh, it's more flexible. I think it uh, will potentially be better. Great. Now, Dr. Conway, lots of dif- disinformation that flies around. People love to fight about COVID-19 in particular, of course. You and I have had hours and hours of conversation right here on CKNW on this subject matter. Uh, When it comes to disinformation, when people say, well, you still got COVID even though you were vaccinated, therefore the vaccine didn't work. Can we put to bed uh, the need for these vaccines? Like, what is the need for this vaccine? This is not about not ever becoming infected with COVID. It is about something way more important. Absolutely. It's about reducing transmission rates in the community, especially to the most vulnerable among us. And it's about reducing the severity of infection if you do get it. So that's my answer to someone who says, I got COVID despite the shots. I say, if you, had, if you didn't have the shots, it had been much more serious. So I think yeah. uh, it, uh, the vaccine was a benefit to you. So with, uh, in your role as the medical director at, at Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, if somebody gets COVID, they've been vaccinated, maybe they're over the age of 60, maybe, they're, maybe they have an underlying health issue that hasn't been identified yet. Is there, a, is there a moment where you say, okay, you know what, you should go 
to the doctor or you should go to the emergency. This has gone next level. Is there something as we head into this respiratory season with COVID-19 starting to surge again? Is there some some piece of advice you say, you know, this is this is the moment. This is what you're looking for as a as a flag or a trigger that you should uh, seek medical attention. Well, let's take a step back. I think everyone should have home tests. I think if you are exposed to someone else who has COVID and you're feeling sick, or if you're feeling sick and you think you might have COVID, do the test. There's a treatment for COVID called Paxlovid. So you should get on it as soon as possible after you are diagnosed. Now, if despite doing these things, you seem to be getting sicker, and that would be short of breath as you're sitting there, short of breath if you're just going up a few stairs, a high fever that you can't control, or you're just feeling very sick that you can't even uh, get out of a chair or anything close to that. Please call a healthcare provider that day. Figure out if you should go to the emergency room and potentially uh, be uh, be admitted. There's still four to five deaths a day in Canada from COVID. A few hundred in ICUs, a few thousand hospitalized. So it never went away. The numbers will go up, and let's try and and get people into hospital if they need that as early as possible to avoid the most serious outcomes of COVID that we remember from the beginning of the pandemic. Right. We've all been through so much here. It's it's the want for it to just go away, I think, is unanimous on a global scale. It's just not going away. Let's talk about our kids and our teens, our young people heading back to the school environment. How do we manage that and, and best protect our, our young ones? Well, the school environment was safe, one of the safest environments, even at the peak of the pandemic, because it is very controlled. We know who's there. We can exclude people who are sick. We can intervene very actively in that kind of environment. So let's keep doing the things that we have learned to do. And if your child is sick, please don't send them to school. They'll get sent home or they should be. Please make sure that this hand washing we've gotten good at continues. And in very limited circumstances, we'll be using masks. I suspect we'll have mask instruction for healthcare providers that'll be more universal going forward. We never stopped at our center and other places will be encouraged to do the same. And there may be a few other settings where masks are going to be encouraged. And let's keep a, uh, keep an eye out for when that is and respond appropriately to the directions we receive. Earlier on the show, Dr. Conway, we had a caller uh, chime in about our healthcare system and about those nurses and physicians who are staying home and not able to go into work because they have not had the two-dose required uh, of COVID-19 vaccine, uh, the requirement that that continues to be uh, mandatory here in British Columbia. Uh, some calling for that to be dropped. Your thoughts? Well, I think that vaccines are our first line of defense. And especially in a setting where you might expose uh, people who are very vulnerable to uh, to COVID that you might acquire because you remain unvaccinated, to me, that remains a very serious consideration And that's probably why we should still have guidance, if not rules, about healthcare providers being being vaccinated. And I'm willing to continue to have this discussion, but it makes so much sense to be vaccinated. The arguments against being vaccinated get less and less as time goes on. And and uh, I think I think we we need we need to take that seriously, the vaccine uh, protection that vaccines offer. 
And when it comes to um, side effects of being vaccinated, um, what have we learned over these two plus years now of the vaccination era in in the efficacy and safety of COVID-19 vaccines? So that after what is probably billions of doses out there, there have been no new side effects described recently. The rate of side effects that are significant in nature is vanishingly small, and the benefit of being vaccinated far outweighs the risk of any significant uh, side effects occurring. That being said, we expect in Canada to have a very effective non-mRNA alternative made by Novavax. That is this new vaccine, this new XBB vaccine, that'll be present as, as a choice for individuals who are extremely concerned or individuals who unfortunately have had a significant side effect to an RNA vaccine. So again, I think we're, we're in a far better place going forward with fewer and fewer reasons to avoid being vaccinated. Look at you bringing us some hope with all the facts from the medical and scientific perspective. Dr. Brian Conway, as always, I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're going to take a breather from the news cycle, the heaviness of news, and and maybe spark a few memories for you. If you're, I don't know, I'm going to age myself here, my vintage of corner store love. I grew up in a time where corner stores were so part of free ranging as a small child. Um, earliest of days, I was Mount Seymour Parkway, uh, Berkeley Road. You know, we were allowed to just go up to Keith's at the corner of, of I don't even remember the name. I think it was Bendale and, oh gosh, that's how entrenched the memories are. But we were given like, here's 25 cents and you could go buy some penny candy. And it was just us little kids being able to walk just over there. And mom knew the people behind the counter and they knew that we'd be cool and they'd be looking out for us, making sure we didn't get into any trouble. It was such a hub for our community to go to the corner store. And now these small stores in residential, excuse me, neighborhoods, these historic cherished spaces might be making a resurgence. Well, if we all agree that that's what we want, particularly in the city of Vancouver, because the city of Vancouver is actually launching a public engagement program to, to look at ways to support and maybe expand these corner stores. So I thought it might be cool for us to reflect back on on how these corner stores came to be such a, a big part of the fabric of our community, particularly here in Metro Vancouver. So we've got John Aiken joining us, civic historian John Aiken is on the line. John, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Take us on a bit of a tour, if you will, on what sparked the first corner stores. Doesn't it date back to like the 20s or something in Canada? Oh, way back. Um, in way fact, back. you can go back pretty much to uh, the origin of uh, Vancouver and non-native settlement, because as soon as you had the city grow out of the sort of settlement around the sawmill uh, and neighborhoods, uh, you had houses and you had corner grocery stores. So my neighborhood, Strathcona, which is one of the oldest yeah. neighborhoods in Vancouver, uh, if you looked at early maps you had corner stores on almost every block and it was again you walked to the store you got your daily provisions and then uh, you went home and as streetcars grew 
uh, and the lines and everything else, the first thing that showed up at a streetcar stop was usually a grocery store and then uh, another small, say, bakery and things like that. So it's tied to residential development. It's tied to the expansion of streetcar lines and uh, that type of thing. I want to point out if people want to get in on the um, city of Vancouver's um, uh, engagement program, the public engagement program, you go to shapeyourcity.ca slash corner dash stores. So if you go to shapeyourcity.ca, you'll find a link to it fairly quickly. Who was it who uh, really took that corner store once it once we were more modernized or colonial, whatever you want to call it, because you say it does reflect back to the early origins um, of our city here. And we're a young, mm-hmm. we're a young city in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, most corner stores I know from my family's perspective, being the daughter of an immigrant, we often knew the people running the corner stores in our neighborhoods because they were also immigrant families yeah. and we would, mm-hmm. we would congregate there. So give us a little bit, if you would, John, uh, a little bit of a, of a taste and a flavor of, of the whys and hows, like who would say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to open up this corner shop where I, I live in the back or I live upstairs and our family runs, owns and operates this space. Well, I've got the the perfect example, which, of course, is my local grocery store, the one that I depend on all the time. It's a block away from me. It's run by the Benedetti family. We are on their third and fourth generation of the Benedetti family that have been involved on that street corner uh, at Union and Princess since about 1919. And uh, it is, again, that Italian immigrant family that arrives in Canada, um, they did a number of different jobs, and then uh, senior uh, Mr. Benedetti got a job at what was then an ice cream parlor, and uh, worked in the place, and then eventually bought the place uh, from the original owner, changed it into a, a grocery store and a deli, and pretty much that format has stayed all the way through. But it's been really fascinating to watch the evolution of uh, what they carry in the store because you can still get, you know, amazing meats and cheeses and things. But then you've got a whole range of uh, sort of uh, Thai noodles and curry sauces and South Asian things as the neighborhood evolves, so does the store. And that is reflected, I think, in many of the existing and surviving stores is that route into Canadian society. Um, I lived in another part of the neighborhood for a number of years, and we had a store that uh, in the 1980s, when the Vietnamese population moved into Vancouver, uh, a young couple took over the store. And over the course of their ownership, we watched them run the store, have a baby, watch her go to school, watch her graduate from elementary school. The, The neighbors threw a party for her when she graduated from high school. And so that growth and evolution, and then they uh, sold it. The store then became a still a grocery store, but a coffee shop as well. And so there's that also that next evolution of still serving a neighborhood function, but becoming something slightly different as the surrounding neighborhood changes. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. We are talking about corner stores. The city of Vancouver is launching a public engagement program to explore ways to support and possibly expand these kinds of businesses, these corner stores, you know, when you're walking through a a neighborhood, 
predominantly just homes and homes and homes. Then boom, there's a little like a seven up sign um, with the big letters that might reflect the family that runs that convenience store, that corner store. And we're chatting with civic historian John Aiken about um, how corner stores have helped shape communities uh, around well, across Canada, but around the lower mainland, Metro Vancouver in particular, reflecting on some of our experiences. And there was a time, John, that that, that was so commonplace that everybody knew the corner store. And, and yet they started to disappear really rapidly. I mean, the, the challenges of, as you said, like they started out of necessity, walking distance or a, or a streetcar distance. And then all of a sudden it became... Uh, more strip mall or massive mall or big box or cheaper or, you know, sort of squeezed out property, got more expensive, what have you. Uh, hopefully trying to to assist with some of those issues is what is on deck with the, the city of Vancouver's um, mission here. What do you think was sort of the catalyst for losing some of our corner stores, historically speaking? Well, there's two things. There's the rise in sort of suburbia, so that even as we develop the southern uh, part of Vancouver in sort of the post-war period, um, what we're developing are sort of monocultures of housing on their own little yards. But then you've got the shopping centre, a small sort of shopping plaza uh, set, but very far away from the houses. So really, you're going to be driving and it's zoning. Uh, because one of the things that most of the neighborhoods that we all really enjoy walking through and hanging out in developed without the sort of hand of the zoning code. And as soon as Vancouver brought the very first zoning in place um, in 1927, one of the key things you start to see is zoning by its very nature is exclusionary and the separation of uses. And you start to see a retail street but you don't see the inclusion of, say, a corner store or the butcher or whatever within the neighborhood. And the city also, and I think this is where I'm, I'm really pleased to see the city uh, working on this as the idea of bringing back retail. Because right now, if you have a grocery store or uh, other retail outlet in your neighborhood, and let's just say the owner decides that's it. And it closes. If it's closed and not active for more than six months, you lose the use of it. And there isn't oh. a single thing. Yeah, you cannot get that back. So it's there because it's grandfathered in. But there's a period of time where that use is no longer allowed. And so that's why you see a number of uh, former grocery stores and other retail scattered through neighborhoods that are now housing um, units and converted because they can't bring that retail back. And so I know the city, because I actually worked a little bit on it uh, many, a couple of years ago now, did a survey of what are all the existing former grocery stores in the city? What are their uses now? What is the viability of reactivating those? And then this is what which I believe has led to the, the current piece, which is can we bring new uh, retail into existing neighborhoods. And so it's really a byproduct of our planning process and the idea that you drive somewhere or you 
you know, et cetera. And so that's that's where we saw the elimination of really the, the stuff that uh, most of us like in a, in a neighborhood. And you're fully engaged in this. So the city's posted an online survey that you referenced there asking for community members to share thoughts and feelings regarding corner stores and also has some pop-up engagement events around Vancouver. Um, and you can see our globalnews.ca story has has all of those. What can people expect in terms of what will be asked of them? Um, you know, I, like I said, I'm I'm all in, like push all my chips into the <laughs> middle of the table. I yeah. want corner stores. I love it. I love the idea of being yeah. able to... To, to have places to sort of congregate as opposed to, you know, you go into the big box store, you grab the things, and then you go to the self-checkout, you don't talk to anybody, yeah. and then you leave. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's convenient, but it's not as, it's not as community. So what, what should we be asking for when our, our leaders are saying, what do you want here? Well, I think it's, it's an interesting balancing act because right now the surviving places that have kind of evolved. And I think a, a really great example is, say, Marche St. George over in Mount Pleasant or mm-hmm. uh, the Federal Store, which is just off Main Street on, I think it's 10th or 11th. Um, they have taken the grocery store, evolved it into something that's a destination. But by their very nature, these rare special places can really be super busy and almost overwhelm both the place and the neighborhood. And so I think it's an interesting balancing act of, yes, we'd love these, but having them so that there's actually enough of them to take, it makes them still really nice places, but also make them neighborhood destinations, not citywide destinations. Right. Um, right? So you want to have that fine line, but at the same time, you don't want too many because you'll actually want this to be economically viable so it's an it'll be a little an interesting balancing act i think um and again my neighborhood always the poster child for how to do things the right way um we've seen the evolution of you know one famous grocery store at least famous in our neighborhood it was super grotty and you never really had wanted to buy anything there unless you really desperately needed milk um but it evolved into still selling some supplies and a sandwich shop and it's nice it's low-key it's a neighborhood focused place and it's where everybody meets to catch up on the gossip and so i think balancing it that way not too popular but popular enough right and And so because too popular brings out the nimbies right john i mean like there are people like no 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 i don't want a store near my house well yeah. And, and and I think, too, I think the focus should be on what's useful for the neighborhood. You don't want to be opening up just a coffee bar. You want to be you know, opening something up that's useful. And mm-hmm. from experience during the pandemic, Benny's was our go to store. Didn't step, I still don't step foot in a supermarket for the most part. But having that local connection and um, and that relationship, too, because the delight I have is. I can go in and say, hey, do you guys have one of these? Fill in the blank. And often it's like, no, but I can get it in for you tomorrow. Right. And so that's the special that, piece, right? It's not like, well, we don't have that on inventory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. John, what a pleasure to pick your brain a little bit here and giving us some backstory. And clearly, Strathcona is the best neighborhood on the planet. 
We like that. Well, yeah, well. of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. I will. I will take my. I yeah. will take my Kitsilano and put it right there as well. Uh, our corner stores yep. and coffee shops that we have sprouted all over here. I I love them so. Uh, very much appreciative uh, your time and the city of Vancouver. Yeah. If you go to their Twitter account, City of Vancouver, they have posted about it. There's actually a hashtag hashtag Van Corner Stores. Or you can go to shapeyourcity.ca as another easy way to get in on this survey. John Atkin, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.